with selling a print about back to the pirate humping a woman in an outhouse with a dog humping the leg, if you can manage to figure out how to get somebody to buy that and pay a bill with it, you've won. You fucking won, man. Hello, print friends, and welcome to Outlaw October, a month-long deep dive into the hearts and minds of the outlaw printmakers. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected, and this month we're doing something a little different. An exploration into one corner of the print world, the outlaw printmakers. Who they are, what they do, and what the heck makes an outlaw an outlaw. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Okay, print friends, if you've been listening along, then you probably know there is a month-long printmaking event coming to Santa Fe, New Mexico called Print Santa Fe. And you might have picked up on that in the last weekend of that month, that's going to be April 2023, there is a three-day print fair. That's April 28th, 29th, and 30th. But there's also so much more. Exhibitions, a print exchange, and two juried exhibitions that will be opening in Austin and Santa Fe next year. So basically, I can't stress enough that this is a really cool opportunity to maybe get your work out there, get involved in the print scene a little bit. But the deadline for much of this is November 1st, so do not dilly-dally. Get on that link in the show notes or go to printsantafe.org for more info. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, and you know they are getting in the spirit of things here for Outlaw October. My guest this week is Tom Huck, and Speedball is generously donating 25 sheets of their beautiful Arnheim paper in warm white, size 22 by 30 inches. That's a personal favorite of Mr. Hogg. So head on over to the Hello Print Friend Instagram account, check out this episode's announcement, and you'll see details on how to enter. In this episode, Tom and I talk about what it's like to make some of the most beloved and controversial images in contemporary printmaking, selling affordable works to young collectors and full suites to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, his heroes, and the Tom Hogg ethos. So without further ado, Sit back, relax, and prepare to have the Tomahawk experience with the one and only. Hi, Tom. How's it going? Hey, how you doing? What the hell you want to ask? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to your long overdue guest spot on the Hello Print Friend podcast. Yes, it is long overdue, <laughs> Miranda. <laughs> but I'm glad that we waited. Because I, I have to make it known. I turned you down. You did. Say, I you turned did. you down. Yep. It's on the record. It's on the record. But now I'm okay. And now we're getting to meet in the beautiful Black Rock Editions Landfall Press headquarters here in Santa Fe in person. This is where it should be because I owe my whole career to this place. It's beautiful, right? Yeah. Like and Jack Lemon and Steve Campbell and Chris, they're awesome. But I, especially to Jack, I owe my career. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to make a living off of Prince having not gone to Landfall in 1999. So they got me started on the path to being an independent and Jack telling me, 
you know, you can do this, Huck. You've just got to do it right and you got to do it hard. And yeah. it's been very hard. I, I took that as well as some hard living as well, yeah. but also hard work. Definitely. You know? Definitely. But, uh, so I feel like it's, it's completely appropriate. It's and perfect. I'm going to ask you to just answer the three questions I ask all my guests at the beginning, mm-hmm. which is who you are, where you are, what you do. Okay. My name's Tom Huck. I'm a printmaker. I do woodcuts, and I my shop is called Evil Prints, and it's existed since 1995. Disgusting the masses since 1995. <laughs> that was a line I came up in my 20s. I don't know if I'd do it now, but that's what got that's stuck. That's what it is. Beautiful. And I live and work near St. Louis. My shop was in downtown St. Louis for 20 something years. And when COVID hit, I moved my shop. I made it private and I moved it out to my property in Southern Missouri, about an hour out of downtown St. Louis. Wonderful. And I just make prints for a living. And that's what I've been doing really since 1995. I mean, I taught for many years in there, but my shop existed outside of, I didn't use the school's facilities at all. It Evil Prince always had to exist on its own and it has it had its own non-existent budget which lived the bills were paid from print to print, which is still the way it is today. <laughs> I live print to print, you know. I definitely want to make sure we get a chance later on to talk about the like the living life of someone who is making a living off their prints and making that happen and doing exciting projects. Oh, I'll let you know all about it. Yeah. But I want to acknowledge that you're just coming off a great interview with the wonderful Anne Schaefer and Ben Levy on the Plate Mark podcast. Anne rules. Anne is a treasure. Yes, she is. And so you got to dive in there for a lot of the kind of lead up stuff. We heard the great stories about you getting to see Durer in the Vatican and then in DC and having these great supportive parents and all of that, which often we dive into on this podcast. So I think I'm going to encourage everyone to go listen to that. And we're going to pick up kind of where that narrative was running out of time, which is like when you're starting to make work that's really sort of finding your voice, when you've Mm -hmm. decided you're going to make some work about your hometown, about where you're from. Mm -hmm. And you do this series, The, The Bloody Bucket. And so I guess my first question would be, when you first started to make work that really felt like your voice and you, and you started to make work that was getting a lot of attention and the bloody bucket is not an easy series. None of it is. None of it is. So you set, you set the bar. And so if you were getting maybe positive feedback and negative feedback, strong reactions, probably early on, what was that like for you? Were you just like, yes, this is my voice? Were you like, fuck yeah, attention? Or were, did you have any doubts that maybe this wasn't going to be a sustainable thing to do? The thing is, I never made the work for anybody else but myself mm, first. Mm-hmm. I made prints that I wanted to look at. Okay, so in a weird way, that kind of is a shield from criticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody takes criticism in in different ways and they take it personally when it's you selling your ass basically and putting <laughs> your yourself out there in your own work. And the moment that you really find that you're, you're doing what is in your id and what you're trying to say, 
you open yourself up to all kinds of stuff. I mean, I get a lot of criticism in my work for being immature, sexist, too much violence, too much sex, all that stuff. And I, I, it goes back to, hey, make it a nicer world and I'll make nicer prints. Mm-hmm. I'm like Hogarth. I'm like Goya. Do or two to a certain extent. Posada. They're my benchmark. And I want to make prints that are as good as those prints. That's my daily goal. And when you care about the history like I do, this is a long-term game. So any sort of criticism that's leveled my way about the subject matter, it's just a short storm to ride out. I have to live to fight the next print out, you Mm -hmm. know. And so I guess I take it. Sometimes it bothers me that the the work is sort of put into a, oh, well, it can't be taken seriously conceptually because it's just satire. Fuck you. You know, (laughs) come on, man. My stuff is just as conceptual as the latest stuff that's being pushed at Berkeley or God knows CalArts or whatever place. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I spend a lot of time thinking about every single visual move that I make. These days, you know, I work very differently than I worked with the Bloody Bucket. Although there are still hillbillies doing bad things in there. (laughs) And these days, hillbillies almost overthrew the fucking government, okay? So it's not like this. my subject matter isn't going away. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I just make work from my heart. Mm-hmm. And my head trying to fit into the history of Prince. So the Bloody Bucket, and then after that I started doing the large triptychs. Well, the Bloody Bucket was still me like taking real stories that I heard growing up or witnessed mm-hmm. and turning them visually into a narrative. These days I take things that I witness and things that I think and things that I feel politically and I turn them I put them all in one big visual burrito that's multi-layered and they deal more in allegory and metaphor there's more surrealism in there Mm. there's more allusions to things that aren't just oh there's a woman at a grease pig contest look at how crazy that was i don't do that anymore i it's there it's a broader based social Mm -hmm. commentary there with some of the the old characters and caricatures are still in there someplace but they're also large. I work really large because I want people to have to deal with it yeah. visually. My stuff is not made to go on someone's phone, which is another whole. Yeah. That's a whole podcast of yeah, bitching and complaining sure. because my stuff is made to be seen live. Mm-hmm. You know, taking one of my big woodcuts and putting it on a one and a half inch by one and a half inch square on Insta Spam or whatever it is or Wick talk and fucking walk or whatever the latest social media <laughs> thing is it is the that's the equivalent shrinking it down to a one inch by one inch or whatever it is is the equivalent of like seeing led zeppelin live and making him play cardboard instruments mm-hmm. this stuff is made to be seen live yeah and in person and so that's kind of a drag but that's a whole other line yeah, of questions. Yeah, there's a whole podcast episode, That's I'm a sure. whole thing. You should do a roundtable with people oh, that do yeah. traditional media and stuff like this and have it, what our complaints are about 
digital media now. I like some stuff with digital media, but you know, when it has to be viewed as the primary intro on your freaking phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ways in which Instagram's affected the market and the way people conceive of art. I mean, that's well, we have a little so running many. joke amongst me and Carlos and even Tony and people like it. It's like when we see work that got eighty thousand likes on Instagram, and then you see the stuff in real life at some print fair or whatever. The joke is, boy, they put the Da Vinci filter on that one, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> because you can literally shrink anything down and put whatever freaking filter on it. It's going to look fantastic. But when you see it in real life, mm-hmm. more often than not, it's a letdown. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's such completely different experiences. And particularly with the pandemic and so much mm-hmm. of artistic consumption being sort of forced to move into the digital space, there are people who just think that this is what art is, is it's what lives mm-hmm. in the computer that lives right. in your pocket. Right. And, and yeah, I guess maybe it's old fashioned. I'm sorry. <laughs> I still like to see stuff in real life. Yeah, totally. You know, did yeah. that answer your question? I think it did. What I was sort of curious about that maybe we didn't exactly touch on was the experience of being a, a, a younger artist where you're, still sort of finding your way and making work that's hard and getting the kind of backlash of that challenging work, did that ever sort of shake you? Or were you just like, this is my voice? Yeah, I never got a lot of backlash in the art world. Oh. I got backlash from the academic world. Gotcha. Okay, so can you say more about that? Yeah. I think that... It, it tended to be, the backlash was more from, okay, if we have Huck out here to do a talk at the university, is he going to put up the Hillbilly Kama Sutra and talk about it for uh-huh. an hour in front of 350 art students? And is he, those are all the different sex positions. Right. <laughs> and is Huck going to curse because the work lends itself to that? Either when you look at my stuff, you're going to go, oh, fuck, what is that guy doing? Or, oh, man, is that guy doing what? You know, th- there was that backlash with the art world. Somebody like Jack Lemon at Landfall Press saw my work immediately and was like, okay, this is all the history, social commentary and satire. I get it. You know, it it was print curators immediately mm-hmm. jumped on when I was like 23, 24 years old and did that first body of work. They bought it, showed it right away i was lucky i was showing in museums at 23 and 24 okay Mm -hmm. as a self-publishing printmaker yeah which is it's still crazy but it was the backlash was only for people with rules that were instituted in classrooms you know if you know i think i've heard this a lot of Printmaking professors wouldn't show my work to students Mm. and that kind of thing because it's a rough world. Yeah. And I want to talk about the rough world. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and students, damn it, need to know about the rough world. But it goes back to a Rob Zombie quote that I always fall back on. Real life rules don't apply to art. (laughs) 
They don't. Uh-huh. It's like this this day and age, it's like, oh, well, if you make a movie about the Nazis, you must like the Nazis. No, it's called social commentary and criticism. And how do you criticize the Nazis without talking about the fucking mm-hmm. Nazis? Mm-hmm. You know, when I depict a Nazi in my work, I, I put the armband on him, but it's an X in it. Which goes back to Charlie Chaplin's movie, The Dictator, The Great Dictator. Okay, there are ways that I allude to it, but I did. I got rid of a swastika one time in my work because somebody said something about it. Okay. And then I carved it away, and then it always, it's still there. You can barely see it. And it, so sometimes that's, maybe that's why I moved away. Some of the criticism maybe made me grow. I moved away yeah. from so literal Mm-hmm. And I became more allegorical, like a Hogarth would, because not everybody knows what those prints are about yeah. now. But the beauty pulls you in, and then you eventually kind of can figure it out with it when you have a title. So there, the backlash was more from academia, yeah, yeah. but not from the art world. Mm-hmm. And I moved out of academia eventually. And it wasn't just because of that. It's just because I couldn't take the rigidity and and all that my personality didn't fit it mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah, and and so when you're when you're making work, like I said, the Hillbilly Colander Sutra, the Bloody Bucket. I'm still, as you can tell, in my question. I'm still in like the early works, and you, you know, you say this is a lot of what you saw growing up. These were stories you growing up. These were mm-hmm. real experiences from your formative years, and yet it's they're very critical it seems like they're grotesque like everyone's sort of transformed Mm -hmm. into these sort of monstrous characters yeah and so i've often wondered what's it sort of like because it seems like it's sort of like a a fascinated and repelled like this Mm -hmm. sort of investigation of what made tom but then also exaggerating it into these forms that are not flattering it it, i had a teacher and and graduate school I was having a lot of trouble and I think I may have said this in Ann's podcast he, he came into my studio and I was having a block I had horrible crits and everything and I was having a hard time and and he he told me he his name's Douglas Dowd and he he told me he was looking at my sketchbook and I loved Warrington Colescott and I loved all these old master printmakers and Dewar's funny yeah there are funny things in Rembrandt's prints. There's a, a faucet that's supposed to be a penis. Right. You know, that kind of stuff. And, in work. you know, it's all over all of it. Posada's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Goya, not as much, but there are funny forms in there. And Doug told me, he's like, you know, Tom, it's okay to be funny. That was a big moment for me because when you're in art school, I think that they tend to try and grind that out of people because everything is so serious all the time Mm -hmm. yeah everything is so serious even though you can take serious subject matter and make it more serious with humor because that makes people think comedians but i think my reaction early on visually was to hit people over the head with it to go the extreme visually with it yeah because why yeah why because if if you're if it's sort of like the monster if you expect a monster in a movie it's got to be alien Mm -hmm. it needs to be over the top and visually there's a lot to compete with out there 
Yeah. I mean, how in the hell am I really going to compete with any of those Van Eck depictions of hell? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. there's a high bar there's that's high been bar. set visually. Yeah. And so these things are things that I experienced, and they were, at that time, small town sort of rural stories, and every small town has those. Every city has those. It just takes certain people to to broadcast them to the rest of the world in whatever media they choose. Me, I assumed that I'm an artist. I'm in the middle of nowhere in terms of the art world. No one knows who I am. I know my history. I know my forefathers and mothers. How am I going to make my impact visually knowing all the history of depictions and what their circumstances Mm -hmm. were, what are my circumstances, and what do I want to see? What would get me going, Mm -hmm. having known all that history? The audience was second row. Right. I'm first row, okay, because it's got to come from me. So my way of doing it was to exaggerate, visually extreme. There's a print in the bloody bucket. It's called Anatomy of a Crack Shack. And it's the most heinous freaking print that I've ever done. I have a full stack of those. I didn't sell them all. I didn't sell a lot of them. But perfect like, for any home. Put it in the nursery. Put it in yeah. your bathroom, yeah. man. It's of a woman, a guy having sex with a woman who has a wooden leg and a dog is humping the wooden leg while he's humping the woman. And he's got prosthetics, mm-hmm. you know, and it's... You know, how, uh, so my subject was a bar. The whole series is about a bar. Well, people that go to bars, they end up having sex. And so that's part of it. And I was also thinking about the dance of death and, and Holbein's dance of death. And death is always there. Well, sex is always there. Two things in life, sex and death. Okay? That's it. Because one begats the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're And... So I depicted it like that because I needed to talk about the sex that goes along with bar life. And how do you do it? Well, it it was just two people in a bed with a cut blanket over them and a bump (laughs) of the coupling. It's not going to be the same visually. Yeah. This way, it hammers home the point. So to speak. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's pretty good. It hammers home the point. And it's of the guy is a a pirate having sex with a woman in an outhouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the worst? Pl- so when you're making these things up, I'm looking at it like a movie director for effect. What's the worst place that you could have sex? In the outhouse. Okay. How terrible would that be? Well, that's where it is. And at that time, I was thinking about I'm in the studio. I'm like, don't put that dog in there humping that peg leg, Huck. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then I'm drawing it, and I'm drawing it, and then I'm doing it. And then I put it up there, and I've got it on the block. And I'm like, ha-ha, yeah, that's what it's going to be. And then I live with it. Because remember, I'm front row. Yeah. I'm the first. I'm the audience first that sees the premiere. Okay? Mm -hmm. And I get to make the decisions. And... I don't really care about people getting upset about that stuff because they don't have to look at it. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the way that 
I am, and I think that you have to be. A lot of my heroes, I'm sure, were like that too. You know, don't, you know, tune it out. You can't win them all. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's my audience is my audience, and I don't. I'm not out to win everybody over. Although I want everybody to like my work, and I want everybody to react to my work, and if people in a weird way, react negatively to it. Maybe that's part of what I want too. I want to yeah. be like Bosch. You said that, I think earlier you said that push and pull thing, mm-hmm. if that's the way you put it, of intrigue and repulse or whatever. That's Bosch, man. Yeah. I mean, it's scaring people off and then you're like, oh my God, what is that couple doing in the bushes? Why is, it, why is that thing sticking up that guy's <laughs> butt? And then you, you run away from it, but then you're like, looking around the corner I'm going to go back and look at that again that's kind of where I want to be I mean I I've said this many times I I try to occupy as an artist a place between the the whimsical and the terrifying <laughs> that's where I live and all my heroes did that yeah. because they were making art about the human condition which is not a nice thing all the time it's hard it's a hard world it's a dark world do you think that like recognizing that and then taking this imagery to these extremes is that like a way of processing the fact that like life is fucking horrifying a lot of the time i'm working it out for myself that way yes yeah is that this is how i think about this is me working it out Mm -hmm. because i care yeah yeah because i think a lot of people who make work that is or even music one of my biggest freaking heroes I love her. She's a good friend of mine. Major influence on me. You know, Sue probably doesn't... Sue sells to a lot of museums, mm-hmm. but Sue isn't the kind of work that you're going to put up in your kitchen, at your kitchen table while you're chowing down on that pork chop. And you in, know? Yeah, and, and a lot of artists, like, and, and like even thinking like punk rock, like musicians, like, like metalheads, yeah. they're often people who actually are people who feel really deeply because it's a reaction to actually living in the emotional reality of a word world where there are slaughterhouses and school shootings, school shootings and yeah. all of it. Yeah. We're, we deal with it. That's how we deal with it. That's how I deal with it. Now, the larger projects that I do now, I look at it as, as learning events, like learning times. Like, so I'll spend five years making a whole <laughs> series about gluttony, which is what I just finished a new triptych. It'll be out this fall, late fall. Keeps getting pushed back. But it's funny. I spent five years dealing about dealing on a whole thing about gluttony and conspiracy theories and mm-hmm. American gluttony in all of its forms, like, you know, fast food, conspiracy theories, religion and violence. Americans are gluttons for all of that. So gluttony in the bigger way. And then it also sort of revolves around a food theme, bad food. And at the end of it, I decided to go. I didn't even realize I was doing it. I finished it, and then I went on a major diet. (laughs) I, like, changed all of my eating habits after spending five years making this whole thing about gluttony. And somebody I didn't even realize it until Jim was like, you kind of... You did this after the whole gluttony You're thing. You're working it out. And I was, and yeah, because I'm thinking about things that are a concern to me, and I'm learning as I'm doing because there's a significant research element of the work that I do. So I'll spend five years on a project. There's a good year-long lead-up to that before I commit while I'm finishing the 
previous project where I'm like reading and studying about World War II airplanes and Mm -hmm. things for the next series, which is war. And I'm, that's how I'm, I'm processing things. I don't. And so my work is an extension of an extension of my, what's going on in my head, the concerns, which is like Hogarth and Goya. Mm -hmm. I, I want to be a mirror to society. I want to hold it up and say, look at this, guys. We could do better, you know, and that's sort of what my work is about. It isn't easy. I'm not making shit to match people's couches. And I realize that's a hard thing. And it turns people off. People just don't want to deal. The people just do not want to deal. And some, I've scared off my fair share of curators too, which is the really a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> I won't name any names, but at big, big places, I've seen like big places like walk up to my work at the big print fairs and stuff. I'm like, no, <laughs> I know I got them on technique, but when they realize what's going on, like when they've come face to face to a giant chicken woman's vagina right in their face in the dead center <laughs> of, a, of a print, they kind of shake their head and run away really quickly. <laughs> so I've seen that. Does, does making like work in like is it like like the hillbilly contra shoes and bloody bucket does it ever make family reunions awkward well we don't even want to talk about the family necessarily because well yeah okay okay so we can edit anything no no all right so that's a very good question because my mom and dad are fantastic they're amazing and i don't know my brothers and sisters they're come and go with my work they don't know for sure but there was a point where I did a print called The Tommy Peepers, mm-hmm. which yeah. Ann talked about. Yeah, there's a scene. A good story there's a scene in there. in there. The first scene is when my mom caught me looking at porn. Mm-hmm. But I also, I also found, there's, when I was a kid, I found my mom's personal massage devices. <laughs> and there was some shit in the, in the magazine about this. And mm-hmm. my dad. <laughs> Saw it, and he was like, Tommy, that was pretty rough. You know, so I felt bad about it a little bit, but uh-huh. it went away. It went away. Yeah. But I'm just being honest, man. This is stuff I think about every day. I don't, I, I'm working stuff out from when I was a kid through my work. Yeah. It's interesting. So w- when I heard you, I heard you talk about that before, you know, the fact that this, the art is a processing tool. So this idea of working things out, it actually reminded me of this moment that I think about all the time from the R. Crumb documentary, which oh, I'm sure what? you've seen, is an incredible film. I spent four days with Crumb in the south of France. Shut the front door. Yeah. I know Crumb. I went over there as a fanboy like 10, 15, 15 yeah. years ago. Maybe 13. I don't know. It was 2006. 16 years ago. Yeah. Because I know people that know him and, mm-hmm. and there was an introduction and I went over and I stayed in his guest house for like four days. That's amazing. But okay, but that's as I go back to I your just, question. This is off, off air. I want all the crumb goss. I just, yeah. You would not believe <laughs> the, that week. It was unbelievable. But he was my, I wrote him a letter. Yeah. Every, I, I was just that way. I've been this way since I was a kid. I wrote him a letter Almost every year for like 10 years from the time I was like 13. Because oh on the back of the magazine, on the back of the comics, they had an address. Yeah. Right to R. Crumb or whatever. And I did. And I never heard anything back. Yeah. Never. But it didn't matter because. But go back to the Crumb yeah, documentary. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, the, the, the Crumb documentary. 
which is actually filmed right before he moves to France. It yes. sort of takes place. He traded place. a whole thing of sketchbooks for a... Like a chateau a or chateau. something. Yeah. And so it's... But it also is looking back at his work, and there's a scene in it where he's being interviewed by a reporter. Mm-hmm. A, a female reporter, a young woman, and she kind of talks to him about how when she was young, she found her brother's crumb comic books. Mm-hmm. And it was really disturbing to her. She got really freaked out by it. And he's like, oh, no. Oh, oh God. And he starts feeling guilty. Well, and he and he says, like, he says something really similar to what you say. He doesn't use the words I'm working it out, but he says, this is just me. This is what's in my head. This is what I'm putting on paper. And he even says, like, maybe I need to have my pencils taken away from me. I don't know. Maybe I'm a monster. But, like, I need to make this work, and it's out in the world. And I've always wondered if if it's possible for artists to feel kind of ambivalent in that way or, or like to to be neutral about the reception in that way of just being like, this is just, it's just out there and I wash my hands of it. I don't think you wash your hands of it. Okay. I think you put it out there because you definitely want people to know what you're thinking. Gotcha. You have to, you make it for yourself first, but yeah, there is consideration of the audience. Mm-hmm. But it's second. Crumb is making that work for himself first. He is a big Thomas Nast fan, George Cruikshank fan, Bruegel, Goya. He he is an offspring of that. And the girl found the work when she was young. Mm -hmm. You know what? Tough shit, man. I'm sorry, you know, you, any kid now, even back in the 90s when that was filmed, you could turn it on, and cable TV existed, any kid can turn on the television and see murder, 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 mm. sex, 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 but for some reason when they see a drawing of something, people get really worked up over it. Hmm. More so than an actual video, I think, a lot of times. Yeah, I think Because right. I think people have expectations of what art should be coming into it. They think it's Looney Tunes, which I love. <laughs> but Looney Tunes are fucking violent, man. Yeah. Itchy and scratchy. Yeah. Itchy yeah. and all that stuff. <laughs> Crumb said it best. He's like, they're just lines on paper, folks. Hmm. That's really what they are. They're more than that. Yeah, but ultimately, they're more than that, though. They're way more than that, yeah. but... They really are. It's art. And I, I don't know what to say to that person. That It's t- it's hard. I, I, I say tough shit, but then pardon me because I'm a Catholic boy. <laughs> I feel guilty for him, you know, but he's being honest. And that is the highest respect mm. that an artist can have for their audience, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think there's really something to that. And that idea that. The, and it's, I think it's a real academic expectation to sort of say, before you create anything, you need to know everything about it, rather than let's create it and see what I learned. I know someone, this is recent, someone <laughs> told me, they asked me a question about what are you going to be working on next? And I was like, well, I'm doing a whole thing about war. I'm going to spend probably five or six years making art about failed U.S. military mm-hmm. endeavors. Yeah. You know? And broader than that, too, but that's the point where I start from. And this person was like, well, 
should you have fought in a war to be able to make art about it? Oh, uh-huh. And I'm like, uh, no. Yeah, but I mean, just, I'm curious though, because I think that art does have, it's powerful. It's, I was about to say, it's yeah, very it's powerful. It's very powerful. It's and very so, powerful. You know, I think that there is a responsibility that artists need to take if they're, I think, yeah, if they're, if they're making things that, that sort of can be like directly hurting someone. Okay. Here's the thing with that. And it's a very good point. Yeah. It becomes, that becomes the issue. Mm hmm. If they become policymakers. Artists, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. If I decided to run for Congress, can you imagine such a thing out there? <laughs> the Hello Print Friend audience. <laughs> then it would matter. Hmm. It's art. It's entertainment. Okay. It's a different thing when those people decide to be are in power to actually legislate or enact change at a for real technical level, then I think it can be a problem. Otherwise, you get to pick and choose. So I, I think it's it's a really interesting point, and I, I'm curious about how then you define art, right? Because I'm assuming there are, maybe not, but I'm assuming like in this ideology there are limitations, right? Like that someone saying something terrible and I don't know. When it becomes exploitative, it's not art anymore. Ooh, say more about that. Uh, It's a hard thing to explain, I guess. When, when you are, when it's obvious that someone is cashing in at the expense of a marginalized group in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, then it's no longer kind of protected into this, that's the the ideology. Yeah. yeah. If there's a buck being made definitely at Mm -hmm. the expense of, of the AIDS epidemic. I mean, I'm, it could be AIDS yeah. epidemic, anything where, I mean, that's even a gray area, but that's sort of how I mm-hmm. see it, you know? But, oh my God, this is heavy. God, Miranda. I'm sorry. I thought we were... I'm a philosopher. <laughs> I it's have okay. to I ask. It's okay. I get it. I got it. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll tiptoe back out of this minefield that we've walked ourselves <laughs> yes. into. <laughs> yes. So I, I have a question about the experience of being Tom Huck. <laughs> the okay. Tom Huck experience, I've never heard if you a will. Frame like that, but okay. Which is that I feel like you're one of the most talked about people in the print world. Your reputation precedes you. Evil Prince has a whole stature and an energy and a presence. And I guess my question is just sort of like, is what's that like? Is it ever exhausting? Like, do you ever feel like you need to kind of perform? Like, I'm showing up at the conference. I need to bring the evil print energy. Not I have anymore. To show up. I don't do that. I don't like the conferences anymore. I think they become too academic. But that's another whole. We got to do another podcast at some point. But I, I exa- to its general question, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And when I started this, I knew that because so I had come to Landfall Press and I had become friends with Tony Fitzpatrick mm-hmm. and so Jack Lemon introduced me Jack Lemon of Landfall the legend had introduced me to the legend of Tony Fitzpatrick so we met and I hung out in both ends so I was hanging out at Tony's independent 
print shop, Big Cat Press, when I was like 24, 23. And I had made a couple of prints at Landfall, which is high-end art world print stuff. Okay? Tony's shop, every day, was a visual feast of craziness and fun and irreverence and crisis <laughs> to sell prints to pay the electric bill and landfall it was the same thing but they kept it really behind a lot of smoke and mirrors because they are landfall press art world stuff and so i learned from both of those ends and jack was like buck you can do this Mm-hmm. You just got to do it right and you got to work your ass off and it's very hard, but you can do this yourself, which is a lot coming from a master printer, yeah. print publisher, talking to somebody that's trying to do it in their garage. He saw a lot in me. And then Tony was like, when are you going to stop doing that schoolboy shit? <laughs> Come and get tattooed. Let's go see some strippers. Okay. And I'm an impressionable young artist. And I had both of those worlds going at the same time via Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I learned the art print business at that level, which is a very high end. Meanwhile, I was teaching at the same time. And it was very difficult after a few years trying to do both. And so once I cut the teaching out, it it was... It was still, it was even harder because you don't have that money to fall back on that everybody is so used to, you know, in the real, in the civilian world. And so I just kind of grew into the struggle of trying to hustle your prints to live. It's very, very difficult. But it's a lot of fun, too. Hmm. Because I get to be me and I got to do, I get to wake up in the morning every day and I get to make prints of like giant fictitious monsters, warmadillos. And I get to make prints about the first time I saw breasts when I was, you know, 12. I get to do this for a living and people pay me to do it some, most of the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm still excited about print history. That's what gets me up every day. And to go into the studio is loving prints and print history so much that I want to be a part of it. And I want to be a part of that lineage. So at the end of the day, all the struggles of just trying to keep a shop alive Mm. With the ups and downs of the economy, the ups and downs of society, and all of that now going on 25 years, 26 years, whatever, 27 years, whatever craziness it's been, that's what keeps me going. What it, What's it like to be me? It's, it's very difficult, but it's also really <laughs> stressful. It's fun. I get to hang out with the Outlaw Printmaker guys. Mm-hmm. They're my best friends. Carlos Hernandez is my best friend. John Hancock is a close second mm-hmm. and I talk to those guys every day yeah. and it's a lot of fun too. It's hard and it's fun. I'd say it's 50, yeah. 50 where it's a struggle to keep money 
and food on the table with your prince. But the the trade-off there is that you get to have a life where creatively you're fulfilled and a lot of times the art world can be a lot of fun. I mean, it, the print world, especially because yeah. it's a small group of people at the high end of things, and I'm not talking necessarily about the academic print world. That's a different world than the like print shops that are having to publish the latest print to keep the electric on. Yeah. By the latest print by the blue chippers or whatever. It's different. But it is part of the umbrella. There's an academic part and then there's the non-academic part. And one is more art world and one is more academic art world. But they tend to get together every once in a while at conferences from time to time. But living in that ecosystem, if that's what you want to call it, can be really fulfilling. Yeah. And me, I just was myself. I've always been myself. I like heavy metal music. I love Dürer. I like drinking. And I, I used to I like strippers a lot. Because you used to? <laughs> I used to. I'm better now. I mean, and, but I was I was honest about it. Like, come, I made art about it. And mm-hmm. that pisses people off. I'm just being myself. I'm not everybody's cup of tea, Miranda. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that. I have enough self-awareness now. I used to think it was just like, oh, well, everybody is like this. No, they're not. <laughs> you know, I've been, but it comes with tr- a trade-off. I've been divorced twice. Mm-hmm. You know, starting to think it's me, (laughs) but I'm just, I'm just honest in my work and in who I am. And Prince for me was perfect because of the drawing aspect, but it also is a way to get my ideas out there. Like, even though I'm the first wave, first audience, it also allows you to get multiples out and affect a lot of people. And that's fun. Mm Mm-hmm. It's fucking fun making prints, man. Yeah. And there's also the community thing around a press. You know, people help each other print and all that stuff. You meet groups of people that are printing thing, things. And and, and outlaw printmakers were, we didn't, sometimes we've helped each other print. And it was just, I got lucky and I fell into a really good group of people that really helped being able to talk to Bill Fick mm-hmm. about Oh God! How in the world did you did you keep the electric on in New York? Yeah, selling prints. Yeah. I mean, how do you? Who do? Who am I, I? I couldn't talk to my professors about that. Yeah, it's a different world because they're not doing that. Mm-hmm. They're drawing their income from another entity, whereas Bill is having to send posters out to print shops to compete with the big. Ease and, totally. and the Tamarins and all that. He's competing with them because he figured out, oh, I'm going to send out posters to Cockeyed Press. And I saw that when I was a student. I was like, Cockeyed Press, they must be a big print place. And it, I show up out there and it's he's sleeping under his press in a closet on Commerce mm-hmm. Street in New York, you know. But it's a there is some joy in the struggle, too. There is this weird thing where... This is part of being me and what it's like to be me is you if you can figure out a way to get people to buy this work, there is a high mm-hmm. that comes off of dodging the bullet hmm. of 
impending it's like, bankruptcy. It's like the extreme sports of it's the totally, art world. It's totally. If you're, if you're able to pay the bills with selling a print about back to the pirate humping a woman in an outhouse with a dog humping the leg, if you can manage to figure out how to get somebody to buy that and pay a bill with it, you've won. <laughs> you fucking won, man. And that's where I am. I mean, I'm lucky. I, I have collectors. I have subscribers that, that buy one of everything I do. I have a museum archive now, the St. Louis Art Museum. Yeah. They get one of everything I get until I die. And I'm very fortunate. But a lot of it comes from having those people like Jack Lemon and Tony mm-hmm. and Bill Fick and a host of other and Ted and Marianne Simmons and people that saw something in me from very early on. And, you know, you realize the further you get into this, people that do this, even if you're able to, as fortunate as I am to be able to sell to museums and nobody has any money. Yeah. It all goes back into the work. Mm -hmm. We we just live to, the projects get bigger and more expensive. (laughs) So that's what it's like. It's me, what it's like to, to get circle it back. What's it like to be, I hate talking about myself in the third person. What's it like to be Tom Huck? It is constant struggle between trying to be a good boy, figure out how to pay the bills, and make my art. That's what it's like. I, do, I don't, there's not anything else in my <laughs> there's world. No more space. There's, there's no space. more space for anything else. <laughs> I mean, I build my life around my art. I don't build the art around the life. Right. I don't just, oh, well, I'll get into the studio this weekend mm-hmm. and make some stuff. And then I may not get in for another two months. No, I work every day in the studio trying to make print history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I take it very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So that also eases the criticism too, because I know, you know I can back this shit up with history. You know, mm-hmm. some of the darkest fucking prints that have ever been made were during the fucking plague, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of sex in all those prints. It's just that we don't tend to think of it in the same realm because they're now on museum walls with a placard by it that spells it all out. I'm sure in their day, there were plenty of people that didn't want to look at a, at a door print because they didn't, couldn't deal, mm. you know, I'm sure of it. Yeah. And I think, I think too, kind of also reflecting on what you say, some of it might just be like, like the shock of like, I can't deal, but I think some of it was like, well, that's not in the best of all possible tastes, you know, like oh, that's, yeah. it's like, it just, it has to do yeah. with like a perceived rule book of what is appropriate and what is not okay, in life. Well, you know? I'm going to tell you, and all the outlaw printmaker guys and gals we all come from heavy metal right? as a background in the late 70s and early 80s when we were growing up. And when you are nursing at the teat of Ozzy Osbourne, you look at those album covers mm-hmm. and that music as art. Especially with me living in a rural area. I put it all together as art. I didn't think that it, music is art, you know? And so we all have that influence and we didn't allow the art school over intellectualizing, grind it out of us. Like a lot of people allow that to happen with themselves. You know, Joe Blow might like the Partridge family, but 
to once you go through art school, I don't even know if anyone out there knows who the Partridge family is, but it's the most syrupy, un yeah, yeah. pretentious pop that you can imagine. It's like the fucking Backstreet Boys or something like that. If you allow that to be ground out of you by over-intellectualizing and overthinking every single move that you make visually as an artist, you, you, you kind of become embarrassed about admitting that you like that stuff, thereby negating it as an influence. I never did that. I'm very influenced by the music of ACDC and Motorhead and Iron Maiden, especially the art that went along with the packaging. Me and Carlos and John, we don't dist- and Sean and Bill too, we don't distinguish the difference between a Boris Vallejo fantasy artist painting and a Basquiat. Mm-hmm. They're both art. And and is this kind of like the core? Would you say of like what? an outlaw printmaker is it's part of it because we early on even though we didn't like say oh we are going to have a mission statement we uh-huh. never did that we <laughs> have a board and we, we have a meetings. board this is yeah. where we don't have meetings <laughs> and stuff we don't do that it, it was like tony named it and then just was like i don't want anything to do with this i'm too cool for you young nuts you know and we were like yeah tony named it outlaw printmaking. <laughs> let's go and let's do it and we had a show that was called the Outlaw Printmakers oh, gotcha. in New York. A okay. small show in a freaking basement someplace. And it was really well attended. But I think we ended up getting together mentally and aesthetically and narratively a lot of times over all of our common interests of that of love for... Old master prints, mm-hmm. comic books, mm-hmm. skateboards, heavy metal music, and being a pain in the ass <laughs> when you're 24, 25 years old. Yeah. Now, admittedly, it was a male-dominated group of dudes, obviously. Most, most group of dudes are. Most yeah. groups of dudes, yeah. That was the wrong way to say it. It was very a macho thing. It still is uh-huh. to this day. But, I mean, not, you can't let everybody into every group. Otherwise, there'd be no groups. And so, like, Catherine Polk and Julia and Erica Walker. And Sue. And, and yeah. Sue. Well, Sue's not really. She's a fourth mother Okay, okay. It. But... They influenced us. Richard Mock, Sue Coe, you know, way before them, Katie Kolowitz, and all of the, they were the influence to make em, emotional work, mm. work about social, social commentary and criticism and all that stuff. And so that's where it comes from, are, are those artists. But like, but eventually, the women came along that we're, oh, yeah, look at that. Yeah, you want to be in a show with us. Mm. And then they kind of, became part of the group at first it wasn't there were just not a lot of women that we could find because when we started there was no google right you couldn't just hop on google and look up badass women printmakers <laughs> what do you, you have to you it got to you slower you know and Catherine polk we didn't even know that she made prints oh really for the first 10 years that we knew her because andy her husband andy polk had, mm-hmm. had us all as visiting artists out at the university of arizona and Catherine would drive us around. She was the one that took care of us and made sure we were eating. And like, oh, and, and she's awesome. And then like years and years go by, and then I saw a Catherine Polk print. I was like, that's not the same person. Could it be? 
she wasn't broadcasting it everywhere. Yeah. So these things get, got to us in a slower way, mm-hmm. you know? So that's how that, but yeah, we were all yeah. bonded over stuff that functioned pretty much outside of academic aesthetics and things that were looked at as, as populists a little bit, you know, it's, oh, well, it's, it's two of the people. It's not, oh, we can't sit and look at a H.R. Giger painting and really assign too much to it because it's, the public loves it, so it can't be good. Mm-hmm. That elitism, we're, we're against that. Yeah. We're very much against <laughs> the elitist art stuff, even though you're selling to museums and stuff. I mean, yeah, I realize it's a weird thing, but the initial impetus of doing outlaw printmakers and that kind of thing was an alternative lifestyle that was outside of academia and not academic prints which when we came out we were really sort of much trying to bring it back to what we loved about prints which were like social commentary and criticism and crazy imagery and hogarth and Dürer and posada mm-hmm. and also you throw in the skateboard stuff with it the skateboard graphics by pushead and on and on and on, and Joe Pitano did the Motorhead album covers, and all that wrapped up in heavy metal music, old master prints, and and fantasy art, whatever you want to call it. That's it, and a lifestyle of like kind of not giving a fuck. Mm, but about, still, like, uh, but you do some fucks though. You do yeah. give a, you give a fuck about the art. You don't yeah. give a fuck about whether or not necessarily when you're young or whether you're going to be able to pay the rent of it. Or not. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. you end up doing. Yeah. Somehow, <laughs> I always felt that if you're in it for the right reasons and you're doing it from your heart and you're doing it from your soul, the bigger stuff tends to work itself out. I love that. And, and more often than not, there have been times where I am in the studio and I can give you an exact what it's like. This is a good to keep going on it. If yeah. that's okay. What it's like to be me. Okay. There was a time my studio assistant travis um, lawrence he, he's fantastic he was my assistant for years and we were sitting there in the studio at evil prince and i was literally they're shutting the power off in the morning mm. okay i haven't made a car payment in two months they're <laughs> gonna come and get my car yeah we don't have any paper we don't have enough ink to do this block that i just finished Delilah, my daughter, needs shoes for school. This is all in one morning. And Travis is like, we're fucked, man. And I'm like, I know we are, Travis. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I needed a certain amount of money to just pay the rent of the studio. And across the street from the studio was a gas station, a little shell station. It had an ATM in it. And I thought, okay, if I go over there... I got like $35 in the bank right now in the Evil Prince account. I know it'll let me overdraw. Yeah. I went across the street. I go, Travis, I'm going to go do it. I can maybe pay part of the rent and part of the electric. So I went over across the street. It let me take out $800. That's a pretty good I over. Oh, I know. And yeah. I kind of, this was not a good thing because I knew that. That. Yeah. 
station, the whatever brand oh, of ATM. So it was the ATM. It was something to do with that. And I drew out eight hundred dollars, so I was overdrawn. And the it, it, you had to make multiple withdrawals, so oh, it's thirty five dollars each time. So it's really it's going to be eleven hundred dollars probably. Mm-hmm. That I knew. Okay, I'm just putting the money down to gamble here. I drew out the money. I went over and I got a. I went to the post office. I got a money order to pay the rent, and then I paid somehow paid the electric in person and I went back to the studio and I told Travis what I did I was like man I don't know how we're going to get through this we may we live another month mm-hmm. we live evil prince lives another month that's in the morning okay still didn't have the money for Delilah's shoes still didn't have the money for the ink or the paper but at least the doors are open and maybe somebody will come in and buy a print in a couple of weeks Maybe. Yeah. So I went back to my work area. It was now one o'clock. I went and checked my email and I got an email from the Janet Turner Print Museum. Uh love them. At Chico. Yeah. And they somehow the transformation of Brandy Baghead was named their print purchase of the fucking year. <laughs> and they're like do you have any left? I'm like, fuck yeah, I got them left. And they're like, where can we wire the money? How much is it? And I was like, 12 grand, man. And the next day, yeah, there's 12 grand in the Evil Prince bank account. Well, actually, 11,000. Right. It's the like overdraft. Like 10,900, right? And it's still like that mm. to this day. Yeah. Yeah. It is not changed. It's just the paychecks are bigger and the bills are bigger. And there are not a lot of people, and I understand, that can do it like that and live their creative life like that. But I'm in this for the long haul and I'm going down with the ship. (laughs) Because I made that decision a long time ago without knowing that was the decision I made. There was some instinctive thing that knew that this is what it is. It's a warrior for art life and I take that very seriously and that's why I am who I am and so all the all the criticism that's leveled at you I'm li- I'm playing a long-term game here I'm playing a history game I'm not playing a oh god you know somebody shit on me in the New York Times because they don't like the print that I did about a, a, se- a hillbilly sex position I'm not in it for that man I'm in this for the history of it. And I'm in it for my heroes. And I'm in it to make prints that my my heroes aren't allowed to make, aren't able to make now. Mm. I'm their voice and doing and carrying it on. And then maybe 150 years from now, some kid will come along and find one of my prints and that'll make them want to make it. Make those kinds of prints that say something and aren't just show up in a flea market because they match someone's couch. You know, that's what I'm in this for. I'm in it for the history. And when you're in it for the history, you don't think about things that civilians worry about. (laughs) Like, oh, God, how am I going to, you know, I need a new car. I got to have the newest car that's out. I Oh, I got, I'm going to have a truck that's worth more than my fucking house. We don't think like that. That's not even in the realm. It's how am I going to be able to make this print to buy a can of ink or buy that paper or fund my next project so that I can 
make the stuff that's going on in my mind. See, that's where I'm at. Mm, yeah. I, that's where I exist. And all my friends are that way too. The good ones, the good artists. <laughs> that's where all the good ones are and the stuff that I like to look at. And that's where my heroes were. I'm mm. sure of it. So does that explain it? <laughs> I feel like that is the, the perfect note to wrap up on i love i love the, the like tom is going down with the ship like that's all that's all, that's all you got yeah. really are we glad. friends now can we be friends oh we'll be friends now Yay. we're okay because i had to have my ego stroke somehow you, know, because <laughs> you can explain to people in the future why i didn't want to come on wait wait because you make I didn't... some shit up oh okay when in doubt yeah print the myth man let's see um i'm all about drama I'm all about the drama, in 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 especially in print world circles, because the stuff gets so blown up and over and just yeah overblown. I kind of like that some of that. Keeps, You're a mixer. It yeah. keeps things interesting. <laughs> well, I think we can, yeah, officially draw the curtain on the longstanding feud. <laughs> there, that's the way you do it. Yeah. There's a feud. There's been a feud. A feud. We've been the Hatfields and the McCoys <laughs> of the print real. world. <laughs> yes, exactly. An unspoken feud. Yes. I don't know. I don't even know. And, you know, we can say that there's peace in the valley again. There's peace in Um, the valley. You no longer have to choose between Tom Huck and Hello Print Friend in your Christmas card list. That's right. But my friends, who you know some of, did think it was kind of cool that I said no the first time. (laughs) (laughs) So, oh, oh my God. Now it's like, okay. All right. (laughs) You caved, you tough dude. You caved. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, why'd they think it was cool? Just because it was like, I don't, I don't need that publicity. Yeah. 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 There was that. And I was like. You're too Hollywood. You were too Hollywood for a Hello Print friend. And I was just really worried that there was too much out there coming out at one time. That's really what it was. People are going to get tired of, oh, fuck, Huck's on everything now. You know, (laughs) okay. He's full of it. Full of himself. I don't need to hear this Wait, story did, again. Wait, did Anne ask you before me? Or did you pick Anne over me? No, Anne, <laughs> Anne asked me a long time ago. Oh. That thing was recorded a year ago. Oh, really? Because they did their, okay. They did it way in advance, and then I think there were some issues. Of what, you know, there probably were COVID issues. It was in everything. And then, yeah, that was a long time ago, oh, and it didn't gotcha. come out okay. for seven months after that was recorded, so... Okay, but I think it's cool that you're doing the back with Anne. You're you you two are kind of like talking about each other. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. I think it's cool. And I, w- I was actually taken aback by that because naturally I assume that everybody's warring. <laughs> Wait, really? You thought I'd be like? I, I don't know. I think like you know like I... landfall hates <laughs> Crown Point or, or Bud Shark hates you know tandem. I know it's not that way. That's so But funny. like you kind of imagine, it's like I said, the myth. The myth, yeah, yeah. The competitive myth. See, I just, I just, I don't, I can't do that. I just make my, I make myself sick, you know? I know, but see, I get some of that. Now he'll hate this, but I get some of that from Tony too, because Tony and I have a little competition, although he would never admit it. Tony and I have a little competition going, because I'm his, he's my big brother. Yeah. He really is. Yeah. And there's that like, okay, Tom, we, okay, whatever, Huck. Calm down. Mm-hmm. This isn't that exciting. Uh, come on, you know. Yeah. Calm yeah. down. Like a big brother does. Totally. Yeah. Like, calm down. I've seen all this, you know. But he he's awesome, you know, and I love him. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be a, a really fun episode and just 
Yeah. Thanks sure? for taking okay. time out. Hey, it's fine. It's great. I, I've enjoyed it a lot. And it helped that we were both in the same town. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. It worked out. That can be your excuse when you're when your cool boys are like Tom would be like, well, she's like cornered me. cool boys? Yeah. Carlos? Carlos would be like, what happened, Huck? What happened? I'm going to lie and say you paid me. (laughs) She gave me tons of money, Carlos. Well, I want that treatment, too. (laughs) From the the deep pockets of the the Hello Pin Friend Bank account. The Hello Pin Friend Bank account. (laughs) Which you're probably doing the same thing, going and overdrawing the account so that you can keep it. That's why I knew that 800 was a good deal. It's a good deal. It's a good deal. I don't think they do that anymore. That's all. But I did. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Very nice. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tom. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our great sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week and the end of Outlaw October. Join me again next week when my guest will be Juana Estrada Hernandez. We talk about her practice exploring the immigrant experience in border politics, her incredible story of going to art school, her newly minted MFA, and her life as a DACA recipient. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. <laughs>